And it ain't Douglas Hostetter, Mennonite and conscientious objector, who served in the middle of a hot zone during the Vietnam War, supporting the people who lived there. His is an amazing story. Rebecca McKean and I, Alan Winson, spoke with Mr. Hostetter at Gephardt's Beer Culture Bar in Manhattan's Upper West Side on Juneteenth and Father's Day, 2022. We will post this conversation with Douglas in two parts. This is part one, so here we go. During the Vietnam War from 1966 to 1969, rather than carrying a gun, Douglas Hostetter organized literacy classes for Vietnamese children and craft training for his neighbors. Rather than the relative safety of the American military compounds, Doug lived amongst his students and survived in the open by being useful to the community and nonviolent. After his service, Doug Hostetter worked to end the war in Vietnam through the People's Peace Treaty, a document signed by college students in Vietnam and the United States, which President Nixon rejected. Several years later, after hundreds of thousands of more humans died in Vietnam and Cambodia, the Paris Peace Accords was signed. The Accords closely mirrored the earlier People's Peace Treaty. We began our conversation by asking Doug about his early life growing up in a Mennonite town in Virginia. Okay, so you were born and you grew up in the Shenandoah Valley in Virginia. Um, what was that like? I grew up in a Mennonite community. Um, my father and my grandfather were both Mennonite ministers. Um, oh, you, had, you couldn't escape that. I couldn't escape. No. And um, in a Mennonite community, everybody you know is Mennonite. Um, and it, it is a, uh, it was also a university community because the, the uh, Eastern Mennonite College was there. So it was, Mennonites historically were uh, peasant farmers, um, but uh, in college towns, uh, you had a, yeah, a mix of the farmers and, and lots of people who wanted to go to college. So it was more sophisticated than some Mennonite communities because of the, the college around it. But it was a, a very tight-knit Mennonite community. And we say Mennonite community, it was like you were all like in uh, houses that surrounded each other. The whole community of Parkview, which was outside of the town of Harrisonburg, Virginia, um, was all Mennonite. Um, I went to the public school in Parkview, which had Mennonite teachers, and I think of the probably 50 students in the school, maybe three were non-Mennonite. Everybody else was, was Mennonite in a public school because the community was almost totally Mennonite. Is it, what would be the difference in your community and then a community maybe a few miles away? Well, Mennonites don't smoke, we don't drink. Um, the girls, the women covered their head with what was called a prayer veiling or covering. Um, the men wore what was called straight jackets or uh, plain suits um, because ties were worldly. Mennonites believe in simplicity. Um, we were not the most conservative of the Mennonites, um, but at uh, this Mennonite High School that I went to, you had to wear long sleeved, you couldn't wear short sleeves, you obviously couldn't uh, 
play in shorts in sports or things like that either. And um, why why not? Modesty, uh-huh. modesty and simplicity are very central to Mennonite tradition. Is it uh, still true there in your community? Uh, it's changed quite a bit. Uh-huh. Um, women were not allowed to cut their hair now or wear any jewelry. Uh, now that's changed quite a bit. My sisters no longer wear the what was called the prayer veiling back when I was growing up in the 50s. Um, uh, now they wouldn't look that much different from a lot of the other people, but we actually look differently. Uh, than A little like the Amish, but not quite as conservative as the Amish, but we were God's people, and I believed and was taught that we were God's only people. Uh, and it was only the Mennonites who were going to make it to heaven, and maybe only the Virginia Conference Mennonites, because the Midwestern and Western Mennonites were much more liberal, and I had heard that some of the women cut their hair and wore jewelry, earrings, and things like that. Uh, and we knew that since simplicity was important, those people obviously couldn't be going to heaven. All right. Um, was, this, was there television? Did the children no, listen no to radio, television. dancing? No, 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 no. No, 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 no dancing, no, no. no cards, um, no uh, public entertainment at all you could you could have a, a baseball game in the cow pack pasture or play tag or prison so you space. could play you could play sports amongst yourselves right but you could not anything that you'd have to pay money for you wouldn't do did so. you hear of sports teams i mean did it filter into your community just information or was it you know actually my father actually was a fan of listening to baseball um i never was much of a fan of it. I played um, basketball and tennis and things like that. But uh, so we were, so actually my experience in Vietnam, uh, in many ways, the most profound impact was for me to learn that there were people of God who were not Mennonites. Uh, And um, that was a bit of an experience for me because I was quite certain that we were God's only people. There are bullies everywhere. As a child and a young teen, how did you handle the violence of others? There are bullies. Um, probably took care of myself. Um, I was always fairly large. No one beat up on me. <laughs> Pacifism is not something that comes naturally to people. And even today, uh, when I was teaching uh, courses on peacemaking at Northwestern, I would tell my students that I'm an aspiring pacifist, but don't jump me in a back alley because my instincts are not at all pacifist. Um, but I know that it's the best way, and it's what I aspire to do, and, and I know how horrible the alternatives to pacifism are and war and, and, uh, and violence. So I know it's the right way, but it's not, it's not instinctual. And um, um, <laughs> it's interesting, I, I was in, once and when I was in Vietnam, I, I was with some students and we were going by a house and they said, well, this woman is a fortune teller. I said, do you, wanna, do you wanna know your fortune? She can read your palm and she can tell you all about you. So I said, sure, we went in there. So yeah, she looked at my palm, and she looked at me, and she said, 
you have the soul of a warrior, but you were brought up in a family that taught you peace. And so you have used, tried to use that energy and strength and anger of a warrior in peacemaking. Wow. And it totally blew me away. This is somebody I'd never met before. And, and it made sense to you. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. My wife will tell you, actually, yes, she was right. Wow. Right. <laughs> right. So, I mean, do you, do you still have to fight those kind of natural urges to protect yourself, protect your family? and? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the anger I, that happens yeah. when other people's attack. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, but I, uh, I've learned that there are better ways to confront violence uh, than to respond with violence. But it is not instinctual. From, from the uh, beginning of this country, the American military has had provisions for those whose religion, Mennonite religion included, uh, oppose killing in any form or violence in any form. But the policy regarding the conscientious objector has changed throughout our many years of military combat in this country. And the CO policies, the conscientious objector policies, were not clear or fair historically. Um, it took a long time to establish coherent rules covering the conscientious objector status in the American military. It's a long history, and we don't have time to go through all of it. And I do recommend uh, Doug Hostetter's uh, website because there is more information there. Can you tell us, Doug, uh, where we were with the CO status during the 50s and 60s when we were involved with Vietnam? Uh, at that point, uh, the Mennonites and the Quakers had negotiated with the government uh, to allow for conscientious objection uh, for people who were religiously opposed to all wars. Now, you couldn't say... Uh, the Vietnam War is an imperialist war, but uh, World War II was all right because we were fighting the Nazis. Um, if you claimed that, you could not get CO status. Um, and it had to come from a religious basis, but actually during that period of time, there was a young man who was um, not from a religious background, who was morally and ethically opposed to all killing and it actually went to the Supreme Court and he won. And so it was expanded to include people that did not, uh, it did not come from an, a specifically religious uh, background. Interestingly enough, that young man eventually became a Quaker. Uh, so he did. <laughs> he, he went he, in the back door. Right. <laughs> but when he was, a, he was a CO before he knew about the Quakers. Wow, wow, wow. Uh, your, your entrance um, and uh, obtaining a CO designation. What was that experience like? And uh, I just wanted to talk, have you talk a little bit about the Mennonite Central Committee, which was part of that process. Yeah. For me, it was actually, it was a piece of cake for me to get a conscientious objector status. Mennonites had been living in the Shenandoah Valley since the Civil War. Since before the Civil War, they had refused to participate in any of those wars, sometimes gone to prison. Uh, because of it, before it was legally uh, allowed. So the local people knew they couldn't really force Mennonites to fight. And my father was a minister, my grandfather was a minister, so I, I basically, all I had to do was say, um, I'm a conscientious objector, I believe uh, killing is wrong and 
all circumstances and in all wars. And so the only restriction was that you had to do at least two years of what's called alternative service. It had to be at least 50 miles away from your home, so you couldn't work in a school or a hospital in your own home, but you could go 50 miles away and work in something that benefited general humanity. So a lot of people worked in hospitals or mental institutions or schools. But I had actually, I had gone to a summer camp, a Christian summer camp program um, for a couple summers during college. And I had met non-Mennonite youth my age who were Christians. And I realized that they were all going to be drafted and sent to Vietnam against their will. And it seemed to me if my colleagues were going to be drafted and sent to Vietnam against their will, if I was a pacifist, I should be willing to go to Vietnam to serve with the Mennonite Church in a positive manner in Vietnam to show to my colleagues and to myself that I was a pacifist not because I was afraid of war, but because I knew that there was a better way than war for dealing with conflict and problems. And so that's why I volunteered to go. And the Mennonite Central Committee is a um, hundred-year-old consortium of Mennonites that came together after or during World War I to help the victims of World War I and the starvation that was happening in much of Europe after that. And so it includes Amish and Mennonites and Mennonite Brethren and Brethren Christ and Beachy Amish and you know there's, there's probably about a dozen different Mennonite and Amish groups that are part of the Mennonite Central Committee and the Mennonite Central Committee is recognized by Selective Service as one of the organizations that you could work for to do alternative service. So and so you worked through the MCC, Mennonite Central Committee. That's correct. While you were in Vietnam. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. So you write that you wanted to serve your country. Yeah. What did that mean to you as a young man while you were, while the you know war was going on in Vietnam? That I was going to go there and to show my country that there was a better way for dealing with the Vietnamese than the way in which they had chosen. Um, and I went politically very naive. Uh, I learned a lot while I was in Vietnam, but politically. I assumed the U.S. was in Vietnam for good, noble reasons, like most Americans believed, and that they were trying to stop communists who were trying to take over the world. And, but I knew that violence was not the way to do that, and that it was important to show love and compassion and to reach out to people, even your enemies, and that in building those relationships, you can actually transform an enemy into becoming a friend. Did you have any choice in that particular station that you went to, that particular assignment? No. I, um, when I first came, uh, there were, the war was expanding. They were exploring uh, quite a number of new places, where, especially where lots of refugees were being sent. And they asked me to visit, I think, three different locations, um, talk to the military, talk to any uh, government officials, Vietnamese government officials you could find, meet with refugees, and do a report back to Saigon headquarters, 
And so I did on three different communities. They decided that uh, Thamki uh, was the area where probably the most refugees were being generated at that period of time. And so they figured that would be uh, a good place to They send. meaning the Mennonite The committee? Mennonite, the Mennonite Central mm-hmm. Committee, mm-hmm. yeah. And you had, have you ever been outside the country before? What was it like? No, no, I had probably been to Canada. Um, but no, I'd never been outside the country. Um, it was, it was an incredible experience for me. But going to a small Mennonite, uh, small Vietnamese community in Vietnam uh, actually was easier for me coming from a small Mennonite community than for almost all of the other people working in Vietnam Christian service. I understood that uh, there's a Confucius saying, Nam Nu Tal Tal Bak Tan, boys and girls should not be together. We understood that among Mennonites, really, that uh, modesty was really important and uh, hard work. I actually felt quite comfortable. I mean, it, they were more segregated than the Mennonites. The Mennonites might have women on one side of the church and men on the other, but in Vietnam, all of your social relationships outside of a school situation basically had to be with men, and uh, women would have their relationships with women. You would intermingle in a market or whatever, but you couldn't take a student out for a Coca-Cola or something like that of the opposite gender in Vietnam. You couldn't do it. You lived in a dangerous area um, in the north part of the conflict. There was fighting all around you. Um, before we talk about your personal living conditions while in Vietnam, tell us in general where you were. In military terms, I was in I-Corps. I-Corps was the northernmost quadrant of Vietnam um, uh, from the DMZ down a few hundred miles where a lot of the combat was taking place when I went there in the mid-60s. DMC's demilitarized zone. Demilitarized zone, separating North Vietnam from South Vietnam. I was in a little uh, provincial village called Tham Ki. It's an area in central Vietnam that the French were never able to totally pacify. It was in the southern part but it was solidly with Ho Chi Minh, the Viet Minh. So it was an area that um, when the Americans came, they assumed the Americans were just like the French. Um, Would you you have sirens like that going off in your area? No, 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 nothing nothing close to that. Uh, We didn't have vehicles by and large except for military vehicles coming through i mean every everything was basically bicycles and motor scooters and motorbikes um uh, horse know. carts yeah i was going to say probably still yeah. carts yeah. Yeah. human yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Too. but lots of bicycles yeah. uh, bicycle was the main means of transportation for most people and uh, if you had a little bit of money you had a honda 50. I want to get back to this idea, the demilitarized zone. I would assume that means that this is where no military action would be taking place, theoretically? Right. It's when the French were defeated in 1954 in Dinh Binh Phu by Ho Chi Minh and his guerrilla army called the Viet Minh. The Geneva Accords that ended that war said that the French would withdraw through the south, 
and the Viet Minh would withdraw through the north, and at the 17th parallel, the, there would be a demilitarized zone where nobody was supposed to be, um, soldiers from neither side were supposed to be there. And actually within two years, by 1956, there was supposed to be elections in all of Vietnam for the new government after the French left. Unfortunately, we knew, uh, Eisenhower in his memoir said that we realized that if we had allowed that election to take place, 80% of the country would have voted for Ho Chi Minh. And so we actually, uh, we found Ngo Dinh Diem, who was studying, I think, in a seminary in upstate New York, and Cardinal Spellman thought he would make a good leader for South Vietnam, and so the U.S. basically canceled those elections. We put in our Catholic governor in a, basically in a Buddhist country, um, because to become Catholic basically meant to become Western in many ways. The Vietnamese have a saying, see if I can remember it, um, het gao lay dao nui kong, which is when your rice bag is empty, adapt your religion to feed your children. And what that meant under the French was, if you're really hungry and you need a job, become Catholic and you get a job with the French. Under the Americans, there were more Protestant chaplains than there were Catholic chaplains and they had more money than the Catholics did. So it meant, under the American era, it meant becoming Protestant uh, if you went to get the best resources from the chaplains and the, and the psychological warfare. What was the refugee situation in Tam Ki at the time? Three large refugee camps, which would have had thousands of people living in, you know, very squalid conditions. But the town itself was Route 1, which is the main route that runs north and south all the way to Hanoi and down to Saigon. Um, runs through, it would have been the main street of the town, and then there's a small uh, one side street that went out to the airport and then up into the mountains. Um, there were, um, uh, what was it, um, one gas station, I believe, maybe two gas stations. Uh, there was a theater, but not, not a movie theater, but a theater that people would come through and they would do these ancient um, Vietnamese plays put on performances kind of thing. Um, so there was an uh, art culture there. Yeah, it's definitely an acquired taste. And it went on during the war? Uh, yeah, occasionally. Not, not regularly, but you would have an occasional performance there. Right, right, right. And then a bus stop and a brothel. That would have been a, a traditional Vietnamese brothel, which is um, very different than the kind of brothels that gathered around American bases. Um, uh, this would have been to provide accommodations for people coming on the buses, staying there, but you had to have a, you, you build a relationship. It was not just pay your money and get your gum. It's much more sophisticated and... Um, kinder? Kinder, yes, more humane. Um, Interesting. Uh, it's an old part of... This was a common thing in villages? Yeah, if, if, uh, if you had a bus stop, this was the equivalent of a hotel wow. um, uh, for people traveling through, needing to spend the night. Let's talk a bit about the work that you were doing uh, while you were there in Tom Key. 
Um, you were there to serve the citizens of Vietnam. Um, you were setting up literary classes for the children, but you had very little training in Vietnamese. Obviously, you speak, you speak it now. So how did you carry out your task of setting up literacy classes? Well, that, that was um, a big challenge. I was given two months of language training, but as you heard, Vietnamese is a tonal language. So it's, you've got five different tones, and you have to get your tones correctly because, you know, chua, 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 chua. That means five different things. God, sour, not yet, pregnant, pagoda. You don't want to mix those up, you know. They sounded exactly the same to me. No, There's, they didn't. They, they would didn't. be spelled the same, yeah. C-H-U-A, but the, the tonal would all be the, the five different tones on that. Can you do it again? Chua, 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 chua. Wow. Amazing. It's not an easy language to learn. I'm not an easy learner of languages. I studied Spanish in high school and college, and I don't think I ever got above a C. Uh, but when you are sent to a village where there are only two people who speak English, there's a Catholic priest and a high school principal are the only two who speak any English, you're actually forced to learn. And it was the best thing that could have ever happened to me because I, I was forced to learn the language. The Mennonites said, go and find out what the people want and then help them do it. What they wanted was for their kids to learn to read and write. And I realized there's no way I'm going to teach a Vietnamese child how to read and write. But the one thing that I do know how to do really well is I speak English quite well, quite fluently. So what my scheme was, I volunteered to teach English in the three high schools in Thamkeet. And then I used my, my teaching connections there to recruit high school students as volunteers to be willing to teach refugee children how to read and write their own language um, in this program that I started out. And it, we started out just in a couple of small classrooms that we were able to acquire in the refugee camp, in one refugee camp. Everybody was excited because education is really, really important to Vietnamese. And if you watch the Vietnamese community in this country, they've actually done quite well because Vietnam was one of the few countries in the world where any peasant anywhere in the kingdom could, by passing the right test, become a Mandarin in the emperor's court. Anybody, it's very egalitarian and it's all, and so Vietnamese knew if you wanna get ahead in life, you follow your education. The parents desperately wanted this, the children wanted it, and it went really well in the refugee camps. And um, so then we, we went to other areas around, and then the villages around close by that didn't have schools, they learned that we were, we had these fabulous schools. I got an MCC to buy this, the, the books and the notebooks and the paper. The students volunteered. I think we gave them $10 a month, uh, you know, a scholarship fee or something um, for, for that. They worked basically doing their, their uh, weekends and summer vacations is when we did our schools. When the villages around learned that we were doing this and they invited us to come out there, we had two requirements. You had to 
set up a, a classroom where the students could actually come and learn. And if we sent a teacher out there to teach, you had to take care of that teacher as long as he was there teaching the whole summer, you know. Um, and take care, I imagine, had to do with putting him up, feeding him, but also making but, sure that he was safe. Right. Well, that comes to a, a third thing. I, I finally ran out of teachers. And there was uh, this village had come. It was way out in what was called the Soy Dao area. Soy Dao is Vietnamese. It literally means rice and beans, which means it's the mixture. You know, it's Saigon by day and a left by night. You know, it's all mixed. People kind of know who's who, but... If you're a Saigon government official, you don't spend the night in that village. You might be there during the day, but by night you'll come back to Tham Ki or someplace safer because it kind of shifts at dusk. So anyhow, the word had gotten out to these villages that we had good schools, and the, the village chief came to me and he said, please send, and we've got a place set up, we'll take care of the student. I went back to the three high schools I was teaching, and I said, look, uh, I desperately need another another teacher for this and I you know I already had about 90 students involved and I I, I ran out and, and I went back to him and I said I'm really sorry I have asked all of my students and he looked me in the eye and he said you know we need teachers more than we need soldiers in this village and if you send me a teacher from Thamki I will guarantee that he will not be drafted into either army while he is teaching in my school. Well, when I went back with that offer, I had many volunteers because the whole thing in Vietnam was you got drafted when you were 17 or 18. So when you got to be 17 or 18, you'd pay a certain amount of money, you get a new ID card, you might have to change your name a little or something, but anyhow, you had to go through a lot of expense and everything to get your yourself two years younger. But after a while, when the whiskers are starting to come out a little bit and you still says you're only 14, the, the MPs will grab you anyhow, one side or the other. And we never lost a teacher from that village. We had teachers that were taken from, from other schools. That village chief kept his promise and we never lost a teacher. That, that seems to be saying a lot that this one mayor was had connections with both sides, both the North and the South, yeah. and was able to make that, that guarantee. Promise, yeah. 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 That there, there's there's some dynamic going on there that There was a lot. I mean that was one of the things that I learned when I got to Tham Ki is that almost everybody in the area looked to Ho Chi Minh as the national leader. Uh, uh, that area had fought against the French. The French had never been able to totally pacify it. And when the Americans came in, uh, and this is the other tragedy of the war. You know, we put in a Catholic government because the Catholics were Western. 90% of the country is Buddhist. Uh, and, and then there are, are Confucius, Kaodai, Wahau. We only put Christians in as the government officials of the Saigon government in Thamki. So the, all of the government officials in Thamki were not local people. They were brought in from Saigon or Da Nang, and they were all Christians. The locals were all Buddhist. When you become your faith because it helps your pocketbook, you usually are not very good about following through on your civic duties for the state, and there's a lot of corruption. So the reason, one of the reasons why 
the Americans failed in that war, as the people that we were supporting were totally corrupt. The same thing happened in Afghanistan. You know, when you, when you buy people to be your government, you're going to get the worst of the lot, and they are going to be corrupt. And um, uh, they might fight, fight as long as it looks like things are going your way, but if things look like it might be going the other way, they might try to quickly shift and cut a deal with the other people. So it's uh, lessons we've never learned. I mean, we but have the, not. Yeah, but that's a whole other conversation. One one of the other things that you did uh, for the uh, the local people was to create craft classes, and they made stuff and would sell it to the to the local U.S. soldiers. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? You showed us a pen here made out of a a bullet. Right. That did not come from our craft shop, but um, I was trying to, everything uh, to find constructive things that I could do and the Vietnamese know how to work with bamboo and they've been working with it for a long time and so I had to make me some bamboo mugs and desk sets and even water pipes Uh, (laughs) and um, then I went to the uh, chaplains in the military and got good American finishes that you could put on it so that be safe to drink out of and and we even had a little sabotage in there you know there's Vietnamese the ancient Vietnamese was written like the Chinese with the uh, Chun Yao it's the script where you know the ideograms like the Chinese the old language the artists the poets knew the old language it would be like Latin for us so we used the Chinese script on the desk set we wrote in Chinese peace in Vietnam and for the GIs, this was nice Chinese script on their desk set. And um, <laughs> we also sold water pipes. I don't think MCC ever knew that we quite did that. But um, we would put together uh, little bamboo water pipes and a, a little container. And there's a Vietnamese herb called Tuk Lao. And actually, the Vietnamese claim that that's why they won the war. I don't know for sure but it's it is not marijuana i don't know what it is but i do know that if you smoke it you get a um, one immediate relaxing high the vietnamese said that they were so efficient because you could smoke your you could be in the middle of the battle or whatever you could smoke your water pipe relax for five minutes and you're ready to go back to truck in the war but anyhow, so we introduced the American GIs to Tuklao, um, which you could, it was totally legal in the Vietnamese market. Uh, I still don't know what it is. I actually brought some back with me accidentally um, on a trip coming back from Vietnam, and I had forgotten that I had, was bringing back a water pipe and I had a container with, with Tuklao in it. And the guy in customs uh, looked at it what is this? And I said, oh, it's Vietnamese tobacco. And he pulled out, sniffed it, tasted it. He says, okay. And let it go. <laughs> so, and he uh, felt good after that. <laughs> yeah. We've kind of already got a feel of the people that you met and that you worked with there. Uh, can you say anything about the quality of the, of the people that you work with? The I mean, I realize people are always different, mm-hmm. but can you describe these uh, Vietnamese uh, villagers that, that you work with, the high schoolers you work with? 
um, the mayors. I mean, yeah. Um, amazing people. I, I, uh, I worked with people who actually wanted to help their country. Um, I wouldn't work with opportunists. I wouldn't cooperate with the CIA. I wouldn't go to meetings with government officials. Um, uh, in fact, I made them really angry because they wanted me to go to monthly meetings with the CIA and the USAID and United States Agency for International Development. Development. Right. And I said, I'm glad to tell you where I'm working, what I'm doing, but I will not go to meetings because I realized it was essential for the Vietnamese to understand that I was not a part of the American war effort because I actually the National Liberation Front would take over Tham Ki every few months usually for a few hours in the middle of the night it was usually a, uh, a new moon so known moon helicopters couldn't be flying and you would hear fighting at the edge of town and you'd hear the AK-47s and the M-16s the AK-47s mean the the NLF and the M-16s mean the local soldiers. At the beginning it would be fairly balanced, then pretty soon you'd realize you were hearing a lot of AK-47s and almost no M-16s, and then after a while there were no M-16s at all, and you would have NLF soldiers walking through the streets of Thamki, singing ballads to Ho Chi Minh. This is at one o'clock in the morning. But they were also knocking on people's doors. And I must tell you, that's the most terrifying thing. There's a firefight in the streets. And when the firefight's going on, everybody is, if you've got a bunker in your house, you're in the bunker. If you don't, you're under your bed because you want to be as close to the ground as possible because bullets are flying. So you hear a battle, and then you hear silence, and then maybe some singing, and then somebody in a loud military voice going up and knocking on a door and saying, Mokua, Mokua, Mokulen, Tupdan, Tupdan, Tupdan Lin. It's open the door, open the door, open it fast, turn on the light, turn it on, turn it on fast. And so you were given about four or five minutes to crawl out of, from your bunker and open the door and turn on the light. And they would ask, you know, is there an Arvin soldier on home leave here that's visiting his parents? Uh, is this the home of the corrupt government official in the education department that's been stealing the a tenth of the salaries of all the teachers in the province for the last few months and if it was people that they were looking for they would kidnap them and if they wouldn't come they would shoot them uh, and take them out to the uh, to the mountains back to the mountains with them when they would go the first time that happened I was so scared uh, I didn't sleep the entire night I, I had diarrhea, I wanted to throw up, I was, well you can imagine, uh, you hear a gunfight and the soldiers that the CIA has told you are going to kill you and skin you alive and bury you alive and torture you, They'd, the CIA had given me a briefing of all the terrible things that would happen to me if the NLF ever caught me. They never knocked on our door. They knocked on doors on one side, on the other but never knocked on it. But I had to actually come to terms that first night uh, with whether or not the work that I was doing was worth giving my life for. Because I, I realized 
I could very easily be killed. Being a pacifist does not mean that you're not going to get killed. Pacifists uh, were killed there. Yeah. Th- three. There's one Quaker, one Mennonite, and one Church of the Brethren people that were killed uh, 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 in that program while, while I was there. Um, so I knew that I could, kill, uh, I could be killed, and I had to decide, is this worth dying for? And I, I thought for a long time, and I, and I realized, you know, these kids that I were camp counselors with me at, at Youth Development Incorporated in New York, they're in the military. They weren't given a choice. They're risking their lives, and they're doing it basically for the U.S. government, who's doing it for the oil companies and the, and the mining companies. If I care about love, if I care about compassion, if I care about building bridges with people, I have to be willing to take those same risks. So I, I, I had my come to Jesus moment that night. And I said, yes, this is, this is where I am. This, I am doing what I should be doing. And it's worth the risk that I'm taking. And the amazing thing is that that freed me for the rest of the time I was there. I was there for another two and a half years. And um, there were a number of people who came through Tamki as volunteers. Those who could make that adjustment stayed. Those who couldn't left after the first mortar attack or the NLF takeover. They were on the next plane out and never came back. So we lost some volunteers who had come, but we had others who stayed. But to stay, you had to be willing to give your life to do it. And um, fortunately, God and my Vietnamese friends were taking care of me. So why didn't you live on the base? Wouldn't that have been more, wouldn't that have been safer? Well, when I first went there uh, to scout out the place, you know, you had to stay in some American place. So you you had the military advisors compound, um, which was a military base. You had USAID, which was also a militarized base with machine gun posts and landmines and high walls and all of that. And then you had the CIA house that they called the embassy. So I figured, well, the USAID house was probably the least objectionable. At least it's trying to help the people in a way in which the CIA and the MACV are not. So I I moved in there while I was doing my survey. Um, And um, during the day, Vietnamese could come and leave and you know lots of Vietnamese in and out and Americans could come and leave but at night all Vietnamese even the Vietnamese who had been guarding the machine gun posts during the day they were all kicked out at night only Americans were guarding the machine gun posts at night and the only Vietnamese were allowed in were prostitutes by prior arrangement um, and as an American I was not allowed to go out at night they said, no, it's uh, the NLF take over the town at night. Um, it's not safe to go out. And I thought, I'm here to serve the Vietnamese people. I can't be living in a militarized compound where Vietnamese, except for prostitutes, are excluded and where I can't interact with Vietnamese in the evening. So I realized that that wouldn't work. So I, I lived with a Protestant family. Um, 
You know, no one would rent me a house when I first came there because there had been a CIA agent who had masqueraded as an anthropologist who had been there before. And when they discovered who he was, they, of course, blew up his house. So the Vietnamese said, we're not going to rent it to another American. We don't want to lose our house. Um, so then through the Mennonite Central Committee, we contacted the local Protestant pastor, and he had a wealthy pharmacist in his congregation who said, we've got a big house, we've got a couple teenage kids, we'd be glad to take you in. So, um, so I stayed with them until the NLF took over that first night. And um, it wasn't the first night, but after I'd been there a month or so. And they were terrified. We were terrified. And, and I wrote back to headquarters and I said, you know, this is not really fair for the Vietnamese family. Because uh, NLF soldiers were 10 feet from our house. And they were singing songs to Ho Chi Minh and knocking on people's doors. Um, I mean, it, so then we arranged to stay in the Catholic high school. There was a local Catholic high school that had dorm rooms for kids from the countryside who were too far away to come regularly. They would come in during the week, they'd stay in the dorm rooms, and then go home on the weekends. And so the priest um, had a, a room for me and my roommate at that point uh, to stay, and so we stayed in the Catholic high school dorm for a year or so, the NLF came in and out. They knew where we were there. They never blew up the high school. They never attacked us. And so after that, then I was finally able to rent a house. Um, and it was interesting. When I rented the house, um, this woman said, you know, I got this four-foot wall around the house. But if you get concertina, this rolled barbed wire, and put that on top of the four-foot wall, Maybe get a few landmines to put in front of the wall and get yourself a 50 caliber machine gun for the front yard. When the NLF take over Thamki, you'll be able to hold off the NLF until the Marines can come down and rescue you. And I said, no, Baung, that's not how I'm going to live. And I said, um, we're going to work it differently. Um, we never put a gate in that four-foot wall. So there was, anybody could come in day or night. We had no defense. We had a little sign out in front that said, which is in Vietnamese for Vietnam Christian Service. It had a peace dove and a cross. Um, and it was about this big. Um, and um, that was our safety. Um, we had a rule in our house that nobody could bring a weapon into the house from either side, but anybody from either side was welcome to come at any time. And one of the things that I learned through that experience, so I was there for another year and a half after that, and the NLF continued to take me over Tom Key, never bothered us. Um, and one of the things that I learned is that if, if you are not armed, and everybody knows that you're not armed, and in fact, you don't even have any way to defend yourself, you are accessible to people. One of the main reasons why people kill other people in wartime is because you are afraid that they're gonna kill you first. If you don't have a weapon, and in fact you don't even have any way to protect yourself, you can't kill them, and you can't even protect yourself, you are not a threat to them. And so people can come, they can get to know you, 
Um, and it is actually makes you much safer than if you had a 50 caliber in the front yard and concertina over top your four foot wall. In the second part of our conversation, Douglas Hostetter describes his daily activities in and around the Tom Key battle zone during the Vietnam War, his interaction with the American Marines, and a very different relationship with U.S. officers who saw his positive work with the local population as sapping GI morale. This led to a decision he had to make when he learned that the CIA was putting out rumors that could lead to his assassination. He describes surviving the violence of the two-week Tet Offensive of 1968 and the human devastation that he witnessed afterwards. Douglas Hostetter's Vietnam experiences established his life path working for peace throughout the world. In the next BCR episode, we learned about Douglas Hostetter's work in Nicaragua during the Contra War, about his on-the-ground attempts to prevent the first Gulf War by trading a plane full of medicine with the Iraqis for American and UN hostages, and his work to save Bosnian students from genocide in the 1990s. In a world rife with intense violence, this story of a man of nonviolence should be heard. Oh,